0: Griff Holland, co-founder of Frisca, epitomises the enthusiasm and energy you all too often find in some of the awesome humans of hospitality. Spending a couple of hours in Griff's company was an utter pleasure. His level of obsession about just the right amount of avocado that should be in any one bite of a sandwich reminded me of why a life of hospitality is so all-consuming and almost impossible to nail. So many details to obsess about. But one of the greatest things about setting up a food or drink business is that you have the perfect reason to test and taste lots of edible things in the name of market research. Griff took the work of testing and tasting to impressive, possibly obsessive extremes. Whether it was offering samples of five different types of chai to fellow diners in India or quizzing American tourists in Vietnam about their lunch habits back home, Griff was relentless in his quest to work out what makes us feel really really good when we go out to eat. And his research paid off, because right from the start, the feel-good food vision of Friska has impressed a succession of funders and has gained a loyal following in Bristol and Manchester. But as you'll hear, Griff and his co-founder Ed Brown have learned hard lessons too, including the importance of serving great coffee and having something familiar, like a chicken sandwich, on the menu. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Griff Holland, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast, very much appreciated. Can you just explain to people listening, where on planet Earth are we, please?
1: Absolutely. We are in a small room uh, in Bristol and Exeter House, uh, which used to be Isambard, Kingdom Brunel's, uh, one of his many offices, actually, in and around Bristol, um, that's just by Bristol Temple Meads Station and around the corner from a couple of Friskers.
0: Amazing, perfect. And I said we should probably sing the podcast because we've got this lovely sort of a uh, big room sound going on behind us yes. uh, for people's benefit, but we won't <laughs> because I'm definitely a terrible singer. I don't know about you. Um, so congratulations on Friska, really looking forward to learning uh, about your journey. But to start with, can you just explain where did this uh, idea of getting into
1: uh, yeah fast
0: food restaurants, what was the trigger? Where did it come from?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 36 now. I have to think about it now. I've got to that age. Is this where I should jump in and say, no, never, oh, I don't man. believe it? Yeah, 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 definitely. I look a couple years older at the moment. Um, <laughs> that's your own fault
0: for the number of children you've
1: got. Isn't yes, it? yeah, yeah it. number three coming next year. So I'm 36. When I was 16, um, my parents are both teachers, and we and so they have long summer holidays. And we did a house exchange out to California, and I remember a lot about that holiday, it was fantastic. I got tickets to go and see Oasis for their 10 years anniversary of definitely maybe. I went on a jet ski with my dad and terrified him. Um, But I'd say the sort of resounding memory of that Californian holiday was food, drink and hospitality. And there were a couple of examples, although they weren't sort of confined to these examples, it felt like almost everywhere you went, whether it be for a juice or a coffee or a quick takeaway, you know, lunch or a proper quote unquote dinner, you just came away feeling really good when you went to these places, um, and, and they weren't just sort of quirky little independents; they were big companies as well. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not cool in America, but it was the first time I'd ever come across sort of smoothie juice bars. And there's this massive chain called Jumba Juice. And I just remember going in and it just feeling great. And we would look forward to going to Jumbo Juice every time we went. And there was another place called Pluto's, which again, I looked on their website and I think they've got like 300 or 400 outlets. So it's not a little mom and pop um, outlet, but I thought it was. When I went in there, the people that served me seemed really pleased to see me. The food was fresh, it was interesting. It was more than I'd sort of ever come across in the UK for, for a, a, a quick on-the-move lunch. Where, where were you brought up to me? Uh, well, I'm, I'm from nowhere, really. Um, so I was born in Brazil. <laughs> Hence there was no food, okay, right. <laughs> yeah. I was born in Brazil. I lived there till I was six. Then we moved over to England. I lived in the Southeast. Then eventually talked my way into getting into Bath Uni. Uh, after, I think it was two rejections. Um, so I went to university in Bath and then, well, I'm sort of getting to that actually. Yeah, that's no, fine. Yeah, no, I was just checking that you had
0: been at least in places that did have yes, yeah, food yeah, out, yeah. I wonder what I mean, your, as you, what your base mean, point
1: was. Our, our listeners can't see me, but I'm a few pounds overweight, so I've definitely <laughs> eaten and continue to eat. But nowhere had made me feel like I felt in California when I went to drink, eat, and just be in these hospitable places. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if there were places like this in England. If you could arrive in a city, see a a brand that you recognize and think, awesome, that's great, I'm so pleased there's one of those here. So that's the kind of what they did, the food. It was interesting, it was fresh, it was delicious, it was great. The other bit was the, the, the sort of cashiers, the servers, the waitresses, the waiters and the way that they made sort of us feel as a family simply when we went in to buy a drink. And it was sort of a level of hospitality I've not really come across before. I mean, over the years I've sort of investigated, you know, read a lot about hospitality and Danny Meyer, Meyer, Meyer? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, big fan of Danny's. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever his surname is, um, I love him as well. And sort of the word hospitality, I think is derived from a Latin word which is also informed the word hospital. And why do we go to hospitals? We go to hospitals to feel better. And that's what hospitality is all about. It's about making people feel better through an interaction, through a thing. And I just remember being blown away by the hospitality, whether it was a cafe, a restaurant, even a record store. You know, they they just make you feel really good. And there was this one bloke in particular. So this is 20 years ago, and I can remember our waiter's name. I can't remember the restaurant he worked at, but I remember his name and his name was Joey. And wow, what a guy. And I thought, God, if I can be part of a business that can leave that impression, that can make someone's day and 20 years later, they can remember being served by Eugene or Fanny or you know, possibly even me, then that would be an amazing thing to do. Um, Also, incredibly, this um, Joey. My dad is really tight. He doesn't like going out for food. I think he'd rather just boil a cabbage and eat it with a jacket potato. Um, But through Joey's hospitality, my dad ordered three courses, which has never happened before or since. And I think he ordered a cocktail. Wow. Which is insane. It will never happen again. But because of the way that bloke made us feel, it just made the experience incredible. And from a business point of view, my dad had never spent as much in a restaurant. So I thought if we can untap, if we can make people feel great and we can serve great food and coffee, then that would be something I'd really like to be involved with. Anyway, that's a very long no, answer. It's good. And that was more than the kind of cliched American, have a nice day kind of thing.
0: It was—it felt like it was authentic and genuine oh, yes. rather than just the, uh, yeah, I
1: suppose our perception of that uh, kind of uh, over happy. Yeah, but I think that's a perception. And uh, you know, there's an element of dourness in English people. It's true, yeah. <laughs> you know? We like to be cynical. We like yeah. to be cynical. We like to knock people down. If you're having a good day, your answer's more likely to be not bad than really good. (laughs) How's it going? Not bad. What do you mean? Is it not bad or is it good? Oh, it's good. All right. Great. It's good. Um, And I think there's just more of a positivity in America. Uh, I mean, you know, that's lubricated by the fact that they're in for tips of 20% rather than our um, stingy 10. But I think it still comes from a genuine place, you know, in the way that in Europe as well, being a waiter is seen as you know, more of a profession, it's, 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 uh, it's a quote-unquote proper job, yeah. uh, and if you derive joy from, you know, serving people delicious food and coffee and making their day, then I can't think of many other jobs that provide
0: you that, you know? Mm. A lot of conversations going on around the moment around the US tipping kind of culture, isn't there, and what mm. they do about that and how they get out of it. I know Danny, you mentioned try to switch it off for his restaurants and say, look, it's not the right approach, but that's probably a whole nother podcast and not my own expertise, but I think it's fascinating. Yeah, the the history of why the US literally pay their staff through through tips, Mm. but anyway. you became sort of, uh, I suppose, known as being somewhat obsessive on your travels around the kind of research that you would yes. do into what people, ate <laughs> and why they, ate. can you just explain how far you would take that? Because it was beyond just a little yeah, idea, I guess.
1: Yeah, it was quite, it was odd, to be honest. Um, so I should say that I did sort of my uh, traveling stint uh, after university as opposed to before because as i said i got rejected for twice from bath because i got didn't get a good maths a level and so i had to retake my maths a level so when my mates were all going to australia and thailand and getting up to whatever they were getting up to uh, i was in reading college retaking my maths a level so i sort of came to it a bit later i came to it having had the sort of seeds sown of this food thing that i might kind of be up for And so after graduating, I needed to save some money to go traveling and I had the worst job I've ever had. Uh, Oh my God, I started counting down from like day four (laughs) <laughs> day four into the job I already had a countdown going but I had an end in sight and so whilst I was doing a job I didn't love have I mean, you got to tell us what it was oh I can't man I <laughs> oh, come can't. on I you can't, can't leave us on there I can't, can't. If, you're, if you're looking for a job they might give you a call or uh, you know uh, recruitment <laughs> <laughs> Not <enough laughs> <man>. no. um, <laughs> at your soul <laughs> uh, it was tough it was tough I didn't enjoy it but what I did enjoy was coming home reconnecting with that memory and that emotion from america and writing my business plan so i wrote my business plan for six months while saving up to go traveling i then went traveling and i spent uh, three months in india uh which was just incredible Uh, then i went to where did i go i went to vietnam uh, and thailand and then sort of Came back. What year was this? Uh, This was in two thousand and seven, I think. I think I graduated in two thousand and six. Yeah, it's close enough. Yeah, I can say. So the business plan was written, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it, man. Like I'd designed my rubbish little logo, and I'd written my menus, and uh, you know, it was all it was all in my head, but it wasn't real, and so and I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I was. I remember in India, I was, uh, I've never come across chai before. And I thought, God, that would be great. I reckon English people or anyone that happens to live in the city that I eventually open my place in, wherever they come from, would really go for this. Um, It's delicious. And so I got recipes from different restaurants I went to. And then I just thought, this is going to be really hard to make in big quantities. So then I managed to source like these chai, natural chai drops. And I went into a restaurant and I said, listen, can I order five chais? And can you make me five chais using this syrup? And then I proceeded to go around this restaurant with these bloody uh, trays, asking these unsuspecting Indians and you know Germans and English and whoever happened to be in this restaurant, which chai do you prefer? And I remember going around and at the end of it, everyone seemed to prefer the instant stuff. So I thought, great, that's something I can sell lots of and and it'd be easy to make. Um, And I did that in one of the best restaurants I'd ever been in in my life. It was incredible. It was called Rainbow Restaurant in Udapur, overlooking, Udapur or Jaipur? Can't remember, the city that overlooks a a lake. Best restaurant, one of the best restaurants I've ever been to. It wasn't fancy at all, cost a couple of quid, but the food was incredible. The view was incredible. And I was chai tea tasting. Brilliant. Uh, did, did you have <laughs> any friends at this point? Or you... <laughs> uh, well, I managed to persuade poor Becky uh, to come along with me, who's a really good friend of mine from university. And she's just sort of humoured me and said, yeah, I, it tastes quite similar to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I just kept on, I kept on. What do you think of my logo? What do you think of my menu? And of course, people just nod at you and say, yeah, very good, very good to kind of get you to move on. Then in Vietnam, I sort of made friends and very quickly was like, oh, right. So where do you go to for lunch? Back home. Brilliant, (laughs) is that your opening question? (laughs) That's my opening (laughs) chat-up line, man. Um, And incredibly, they answered me and you know, we had some good nights out. But um, yeah, just kept on going back, where do you go to? I remember when I was flying from India to Vietnam, I would sort of listen out for American accents, go and sit next to them and say, where do you go for lunch back home? And get people's email addresses because say, oh, I'm thinking of starting this restaurant. What do you do? And then I'm marketing, oh, let me know how I can help. But not just always thinking about it, man. And then, so that was Vietnam. And then Thailand was the last straw, basically. I arrived in Thailand and um, I did sort of a loop. And then I ended up back in Bangkok. And I remember, spending days in the shopping center, in the food court, watching people choose what they wanted for lunch. And then I would approach them and ask them why they chose that and what they thought of my <laughs> bloody logo. <laughs> <laughs> and I just then thought, what are you doing? Brilliant. Go home and get on with it. So I, re- I remember it vividly. I've got a bad memory, but I remember this vividly. And I jumped onto a tuk-tuk I went to the Emirates uh, desk and I said, I need to go home. So oh, I booked my return t- t- uh, trip, sort of, two weeks. Uh, uh, and you were planning on being away longer, were you? But it just, it was yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, man. I was planning... It was planning taking it, over your head. It was taking over. You know, I'd, I'd think about it when I woke up. Look, that isn't all I did on my travels, and I had an incredible time. I was so pleased I did it then because I've been all in since Ed and I started Frisca. but um, yeah, it was taking up a disproportionate amount of time on my travels, and so I thought, get on with it. Amazing, Uh, yeah. Was it already called Frisca in your head at this point, or? Actually, it it wasn't, it was called Crunch Foods, which in hindsight was a bad name, because (laughs) crunch suggests, I don't know, crunchy salad. It might turn some people on, but it might turn a load of people off. Also, looking out of the window today, it's pretty overcast, it's a little bit chilly, and so opening a salad bar in England, I. you know, in hindsight, probably wasn't the smartest move. Um, sort of credit crunch time as well, wasn't it? Could credit have a crunch time, on, yeah, yeah, could yeah. Have, yeah. Could,
0: could have had a play on that. So some
1: negative connotations. But no, it wasn't called Frisca, it was called Crunch. I'd say the essence was the same, though. Um, the the essence of creating a, a food and drink place that makes people feel great was absolutely there. It just wasn't anywhere near as, I hope, good as frisca uh, that I sort of created with ed when, so we, yeah, when so we met so when did that
0: start then when did when when did the business actually start and how did you meet ed
1: um well so ed went to the same university as as i did he went to bath university he didn't have to retake his maths a level <laughs> or talk his way into <laughs> bath uh, so he got in first time but he went to the same uni graduated in the same year in the same course as i did and i don't know what this says about us sort of socially but um, we never met, we never cl- clasped eyes on each other. You'd never interviewed him about what, what he ate for lunch and whether he liked your logo. I didn't. <laughs> he's, one, he's one guy you missed. <laughs> no, I didn't, damn it. Maybe oh. if I had done that sooner, I would have got together with him quicker <laughs> yeah, and we would have been never on evolved. our way. Um, but um, yeah, so we went to the same uni, all of that was the same, but our paths didn't cross. When I got back to the UK, decided Bristol was the place to do crunch or this food thing um, and, you know, as, as a young 24, 25-year-old guy, I'd spend my evenings going to business networking events yeah. <laughs> because I wanted to, I don't know, meet people that were doing cool things and interesting and ask things. Them what they and ask them what they, where they went for lunch. Yeah. And it was typically like technology events that I'd go to and everyone was like, who the hell is this <laughs> bloke that's trying to sell food? Brilliant. What is he doing here? Anyway, I sat next to this uh, other young buck uh, and we got talking. His name was Ed, and it turned out we had been to the same uni, similar ambition, um, similar ideas about the sort of thing, company, organization we wanted to be a part of or potentially start. Um, but we were also very different in our skill set, let's say. Um, and yeah, we got to know each other over sort of three months. Um, you know, checking in, having a coffee, having a, having a beer. Where are you with your business? Where are you with mine? Uh, at the time he was working on a technology idea, which was a fantastic idea, um, but for, for a, f- a number of reasons, it just didn't, wasn't the right time for that idea to sort of come to life. And so after three months of getting to know each other, I said, you know, what do you think? You thinking what I'm thinking, <laughs> um, and he said I might be. <laughs> so I, I remember it was New Year's Eve, two thousand and eight into nine, and of course all my friends are out having a good time. My parents were in the living room watching Jules Holland, and I was in the sort of kitchen dining room hammering away my crunch business plan because I was sort of submitting it going to submit it to my potential business partner Uh, and it was my most memorable New Year's Eve I've ever had man wow I remember it this was clearly your destiny yeah 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 so I emailed it through to him I I said to him
0: was he sat at home on his own waiting for your email
1: (laughs) (laughs) maybe I don't know I'd like to think so but I'm not sure Um, I said I'd have it to him on New Year's Eve right Uh, I got it to him like 2 in the morning on New Year's Day Uh, which uh, yeah I'm sure if he listens to this podcast he'll smirk at because I always push push, push, push it to the limit (laughs) (laughs) and I sent it through to him when he read it and he thought it was pretty good and we made it better and then it all began was that a big decision going into partnership with someone else had that ever been your game plan or uh... Um, I toyed with a couple of business ideas at university Um, they were they were sort of tech ideas Um, And actually I always liked the idea of going into business with someone. I've got many, many strengths, weaknesses, more weaknesses than strengths. Um, And so I kind of think if you've kind of got an idea and you've got the passion and drive to do something, but you don't tick all the boxes, um, it kind of makes more sense to uh, go in and do it with someone that ticks some of the boxes that you Mm. don't tick. Can be high risk though. There's a lot of people
0: who've tried sort of business partnerships yeah. uh, and they don't work, but clearly it's been successful because we'll come to what you've now created. But uh, has that always been the case or? That we've always the, got the, on? Yeah, relationship-wise. And I your, would your say so. so. I mean, I've had
1: more fights with my, um, my wife who won't marry me than I have with Ed. <laughs> I going to ask Ed what he thinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no. I mean, <laughs> occasion, I don't know that we've ever had a crossword sometimes it's a bit tense if like the pressure's on and i don't know like you know you can snap not snap but it gets a little bit tight but no i mean i I don't i think fundamentally we've never disagreed with each other which you might argue is a bad thing we're not as we're not challenging enough to each other's ideas um but no i think since day one our idea of what a good business can and should be an idea of you know, if you're on, if you're doing something good, then do it as big as you can. Well, we've never shunned away from the idea that we want to grow a good business, a big business. It's founded on good principles, great principles, I hope. And we figure if you're going to do something good, make it as big as you can because more good is better than less good. It's very true. Can't can't argue with that. And we'll come back to uh,
0: some of the good stuff. So uh, first one, how do you how do you fund it? How do you build the first one.
1: Yeah, well, in, I mean, incredibly, the bank lent to us. Um, and it was after Lehman Brothers. It was after Credit Crunch. No one was lending anyone anything to anyone.
0: That's impressive, because hospitality doesn't have a great reputation for... No. Uh, ...success rate. So Does it doesn't. Clearly, your New Year's Eve focus on your business plan had worked well. I what hope what, what so. was it
1: that made them say yes? Um, <laughs> um, what was it? I think, fundamentally, it was about... Uh, Energy, passion, but also thoughtfulness into the like what a business plan could and should look like. So I, I, quote unquote, well, let's say I used the university resources a lot when I was there in terms of getting loads of market research reports about where how you know what's the future of the food market, where's it going, where a future food trend's going to be coming in. Um, it was sort of gra- we had no credibility as individuals. Um, because we'd never done it before. But what our business plan did show, it was a clear vision about what sort of company we wanted to create. It showed, you know, costings of dishes. So it showed that we knew how to cost the menu and to, in theory, derive a gross profit margin from. Uh, It also showed that we were getting into a growth sector within the food industry. and you know, we came from a, a good university with so if, good degrees. Both of your degrees were in economics, that's guess, right, right. So yeah. presumably that helped actually show you knew what you were talking about. I think and you so. knew how to research the market. I think so. To the audience, it certainly did. If the investment committee are also graduates in business or economics, then, you know, rightly or wrongly, they might think, ah, these guys might might be able to do it. Um, so there was it was a it was a good solid business plan. It was a clear vision of what we wanted to achieve. Um, you could argue they weren't lending to anyone else, so uh, they it's needed true. to lend yeah. to someone. It was
0: a tough time. We opened a, a restaurant in 2009, I think, and uh, it was so much harder than anything we'd done historically. The, yeah, crossing the T's, dotting the i's, mm. and getting them to say yes. You know, the, the first couple of times we'd, we'd raised finance, it was reasonably easy. But mm-hmm. God, that one was, yeah. Post Lehman Brothers, it was like, wow, really? oh, here's a whole new world. Um, money was there, but it was a lot was hard a lot to tap harder. into. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So well done for pulling it off.
1: Thank you. And then obviously we tapped up our, you know, our unsuspecting parents for a couple of thousand pounds each, probably a bit more. Um, We put in any and every penny we had personally uh, and we did it on an absolute shoestring. You know, if you had walked into Victoria Street 10 years ago, it would have been, uh, yeah, pretty rustic in terms of its fit out. I mean, I remember the, you know, the oven broke on day two, the chiller exploded before we even opened. Um, You know, we did it on the cheap. Because we didn't have any money. Yeah. Um, but were you and Ed both in there? Were you cooking the food, making it, serving it? Was yeah, it the whole, the yeah. Whole shebang? Yeah. I mean, Ed's first day in hospitality was the first day that we opened Frisca. <laughs> I remember the day we opened. God, um, we had a problem with our tills. We subsequently moved till providers, and it was like none of the products or prices are on the tills. The, company said, oh, we'll come and see you next week. I was like, no, you won't. We're opening, we've opened four hours ago. At the moment, everything's for free. You need to get here five minutes ago. And it was like four minutes to 12 and we were literally having to type the whole menu onto the bloody till system with all the prices. Pressed go, 12 o'clock hit and then it was game Man. time. So uh, yeah, we've got some good memories of opening up, but you know, it was really tough. It was really tough. We made some mistakes or we, 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 we overlooked a number of things, which, you know, 10 years of experience has um, hopefully reduced the number of uh, mistakes and things we overlook. Any big ones you remember? Um, yeah, two. One was we didn't serve great coffee. And the other one was we didn't make it easy for new customers to kind of get on board. So the business plan was always centered around food. It was a food thing. We want, you know, there's so many great sandwich places, you know, Pret have done an incredible job in sort of revolutionizing the food on the go market, <laughs> you know, with their with their incredibly successful business. But it felt like sort of culture was changing. You know, you had Autolengi books on your cook sho- uh, on your bookshelf, you watch Jamie Oliver on telly and maybe Nigella at Christmas. Um, But the sort of lunchtime food offer that you would go out for wasn't reflecting those things that you read about or watched or perhaps cooked at home. Um, Certainly sumac was nowhere to be seen on anyone's uh, menu. It might have been in your larder, but not on anyone's menu. Um, So I don't know, it just sort of felt like the food culture had moved on but the lunchtime scene hadn't. I would say this is before uh, food trucks and street food and all of that stuff um, that is so uh, commonplace and popular now had really come into play. To my mind, the the lunchtime scene was largely dominated by sandwiches. And I, I don't know when Leon opened, but I think they brought quite a revolutionary approach to food. Uh, for lunchtime. Anyway, I've gone completely off um, topic. Um. <laughs> you, were, you were explaining about the two things that have gone wrong. Mistakes. One was
0: coffee. One was you said you made it hard for customers to, to get, get on board. On board. What so, was that? Because they were predominantly just walking through the door.
1: They it? they were. And then when they got through the door, they didn't recognise anything. Right. So, you know, we had dough piazza and we had gumbo and we had basically things that you would normally order in a restaurant or make from a cookbook we had on our menu. And people weren't expecting that and they'd not come across it before. And they went in probably looking for a chicken sandwich. And so when they got to the door, they looked up. I mean, our signage was particularly bad. So they probably couldn't even read it. But if they managed to read it, it would be things that they weren't used to buying. And so they sort of froze. They did the sort of Frisker uh, rabbit in headlights stare and if I didn't get to them in time to sort of talk them <laughs> into staying and choosing something, they'd turn around and go and get a sandwich. Yep. So that's what I mean about we didn't make it easy for customers to get on board. I think, Is that because you didn't want to sell chicken and bacon sandwiches? Or? Um, it's probably because I thought actually that Prep did such a good job at bringing you know, quality fresh sandwiches to the lunchtime market, that why would I compete with you know, the prex of this world? Let's try and carve out another area. Um, but if people are used to sandwiches and that's what's in their mind, they're probably gonna start on a sandwich and then they will try a, you know, a pho a, a, a or, a, as I say, a gumbo or a chicken chorizo wrap. And these things don't sound particularly revolutionary now, but 10 years ago, they were quite different in the lunchtime market. So we made it really hard for customers to get on board. And so not, frankly, not many of them did. Really, It was dead as a dodo. You know, you could see the tumbleweeds in our stores and we had to fight for every single customer, um, as we still do, as we still do. You know, you never need to, you should never get uh, complacent in, 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 in maintaining your, your quality and making it easy for people to get on board and enjoy their time with you and hopefully come back. Um, so that was number one. And actually, I liken it to iTunes and Apple. And this is not to say that Frisca is as an incredibly successful company as Apple yet. But um, people, I don't think, would have spent 500 quid on an iPod back when it was 500 pounds if they hadn't got on the Apple train with iTunes and seen how much nicer it was to use than Windows Media Player. And then it's like, okay, I kind of get Apple. It feels nice, it's cool. I'm gonna move my uh, Windows Media Player over to Apple iTunes. Oh, well maybe I might think about getting an iPod. And then, they're in, and then they've got an iPod and an iPhone and an iMac, and then they're on the Apple train. But if Apple had launched with the, the, the first time you could be exposed to Apple would be through a 500 quid MP3 player, I don't think they would have had the traction because it's too big a jump. And I know a five pounds lunch is not a 500 pound MP3 player, but it's the same sort of thing. You need to make it easy for your customers to, to become fans and to get what you do. So that was one. Coffee was number two. I'll speed it up because as I, I say, I, <laughs> I take my time and I uh, uh, yeah, talk too much. Um, so Frisker was all about great food, interesting food, food to love. And we kind of didn't think about coffee. To me, back then, coffee, I mean, I don't even know what wave we're riding at the moment. Is it a fifth wave, sixth wave, God knows. Um, but back then, I think they were called second wave coffee companies, um, which would be Starbucks, Costa, Nero. And I'm not, I, these are incredibly successful businesses, far more successful than we are, but I never really liked their coffee. And I suppose because I didn't really like their coffee, I didn't think coffee was that good. And so I just thought it was something that you have to sell, but isn't that, isn't something to get that excited about? So we launched, ironically, with the most, well, it was a bean-to-cut machine, the same machine that our friends at Subway have in all of their stores. And it was the the most expensive bit of kit we bought for our first ever Frisker. And we felt that it was worth it because it would mean that we could consistently serve mediocre coffee fast, (laughs) Fast fast-ish. If you've got a good barista, you can really pump it out of a, you know, a, a Le Mazzucco machine, which we have now. Um, so we launched with mediocre coffee. The beans were good. The beans were good beans, but they weren't made well. Because we didn't appreciate how important coffee was to people. And I remember, I would say the first cup of coffee I've ever had, I'd had many before, but the first cup of coffee I'd ever had was one at Proof Rock in London. Uh, and I was like, Wow. That's what a cup of coffee can taste like. And then we just thought to ourselves, right, we need to buy a proper coffee machine and we need to place the same amount of pride and uh, passion and focus that we put on our food. And we need to put that in a cup because I, th- I guess the, 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 the lesson to learn from that is if you've got a set of values, whatever they may be, you've got to apply it to whatever you do. So if our values are around you know, taking pride in what you do getting better, having fun doing it, and being successful at it, and we apply those to food. Well, we have to apply it to coffee, you know? Uh, and we didn't. We just served mediocre coffee every day. Uh, How long did you do that before you changed it? Oh man, too long, too bloody long. Uh, it was on the 12th of January, 2000, I think it was a l- hmm. 2012. I think it was like 18 months after wow. we opened. Okay. Too long, man. Yeah. Too long. And how long before the place was busy? Then you say it was tumbleweed
0: to start with. When did you start to have the confidence that actually the queue, it's gonna the work? queue
1: hit the door at lunchtime on our first birthday. And I remember, and it was like a year of hard work. I mean, it's still hard work now. Um, but it was a year of hard work, fighting for every customer. You know, Ed would be on the tills, I'd be out in the street waving at people just to get their attention to come in, handing out samples, push, push, push. Uh, and yeah, eventually they started coming. And I'd say it was a year, it was a year to the day that the queue, that the queue hit the door. A little bit longer, we realised we're really missing a trick because they're going, and rightly so, they're going to Barista's over the road to get their coffee, and then they're coming back to our place to get their breakfast. Well, that's crazy, you know. I mean, it's great that they're willing to queue twice mm-hmm. for their coffee and our food, but why can't we just make great coffee and they can just come to our place? Um, so yeah, we 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 launched good coffee and uh, and here we are. Good work, um,
0: and right from the start, this feel feel good food
1: mm. seems to be your uh, your scrap-line. What did you mean by that, or what does that mean? It's really a feel good company, and I know that you might you know you're. People listening to this now might be like rolling their eyes <laughs> and thinking I can, you know, whatever. Um, but I think there are lots of examples of feel-good companies. Like not every single practice every company does uh, is, you know, let me think about this. Take Starbucks, for example. I'm incredibly inspired and admittedly by uh, Howard's book, mm, it's Onwards. It's a good book, well, not it? It's a great book. Yeah. And the, I, I really
0: wanted to dislike him and the company and I read that book Amazing! And I was like, shit,
1: this is a really good story. This is a good story of a good man yeah. building a good company. I don't like their coffee, but that's irrelevant. Actually, the sort of principles and the values that that company had resonated with him as a, not founder, but as their sort of CEO, their leader... And he stayed true to those values. He had to change. The business had to flex. He, you know, Jamie Oliver was only saying the other week in the Observer Food Monthly when he won a uh, personality award that you know, for a business to succeed, it needs to have flexibility and it needs to be resilient. If you're too rigid, you 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 can't move and you might snap. Um, but staying true to your values and your principles uh, is 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 fundamental. So. What is feel-good food? Well, Frisca isn't feel-good food. It's actually a feel-good company that sells food and sells drink and employs people that makes people's day. Um... It's as simple
0: as that. Nice. No, I think that's a good explanation, and it goes back to what Danny, you know, sort of says. That's the point of hospitality, really, isn't it? It's about how you make people feel. Uh, he makes the point that business, like life, is about how you make people feel. It's that simple, and it's that hard. Is one of his quotes, which I love. If we all just went through life on a day-to-day basis and c- focused on every. Uh, interaction we have with human beings and how does that interaction make the other person feel? Mm. The world would be awesome, wouldn't mm. it? You know, that's the point. So well, that's I, a challenge. I, that's a hard. It is. So that's why he says it's that simple too. and it's that hard. You know, on on one level, you think, well, that's easy, isn't it? Yeah, I'll just focus on making people feel good. And in reality, you know, everybody's having complicated shit going on in their lives, aren't mm-hmm. they? it's uh, it's a challenge. So when you mentioned then about making it hard for people to uh, to come in and buy from you and fall in love with you, have you have you had to stick to that? Have you now? you know, have you got a sandwich? Have you got some easy entry points yeah. where people can come in yeah. and, and buy the basics and then you
1: can build them up? Absolutely. We, we want cuts. to make it as easy as possible for people to come and join Frisca without sounding like a cult. Yeah. Um, and that has meant introducing sandwiches. That has rightly meant introducing better coffee, introducing and making great coffee. That has meant um, increasing our speed of service at the tills. You know, that has meant a whole load of things uh, to, to go back to what, you know, what Jamie said the other week about um, creating resilience and strength and flexibility in a business to allow it to scale, to grow, to serve the most number of people, to achieve our sort of ambition to be our customer's favorite place to go every day, Yeah, you know.
0: I had a similar experience when we, uh, we opened a craft beer bar and for the first two years I refused to sell any internationally or nas- even nationally recognised beers. It was all about this revolution in British beer and I just thought it's brilliant, the fact that there's now every town, city, village is making all these beautiful beers. Why do we need to be dominated by Heineken or worst case you know Foster's or whatever it mm, might be mm. and uh, for two years I was insistent on, on only selling quirky interesting beers but the number of people who would walk in look at the beers and go no I don't recognise anything and walk out and go to the place next door drove me bonkers and I was like Man, just try it and, and it became the, you know, the barman's job was to chat to the customer, say, look, what do you normally drink? You know, if, you, if it's a premium 5%, it's a session, kind of 4%, you want something hoppy, you want something, but whatever it is, but you needed to have that conversation. But even with that kind of training and impetus after two years, we ended up putting one recognized beer, we put Estrella in and the, that was then- That the job. was your it was like, sandwich. It was kind of like, yeah, you can sell them an Estrella the first time, but your job from then on is to say, look, just try something more interesting or more quirky and stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, the public can be frustrating sometimes, mm. don't they, mm. they're wrong. Yeah. But yeah. of course they're not. They're always right. And you've got to sell <laughs> what they want. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned in the start of this was how Joey, was that his name? The uh, said yes. how he made you feel. Yes. And, and again, I know you've said that, you know, you want to be one of the best employers in hospitality. How do you find lots of Joeys? Because it was all right, that first one, when you were there out mm. the front, mm. kind of luring people in, mm. as you've grown them, how hard has it been to find either, yeah, other yous or other Joeys? And what do you do to, to, to get around that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think whatever business you're in, the main challenge is recruitment. Whether you're, you know, programming Facebook or making iPhones or building houses or serving food and coffee or running a hotel, your business it is the people that make it come to life. You know, if, I don't know, if, If Patagonia, I'm touching my Patagonia jacket today, jackets were made in a uh, factory that took no care in making their products, um, their product would be rubbish, and no one would buy them. Um, And so recruitment is the business. There was a book I read by the bloke that I forget his name, Tony Hirsch, I think his name is. He started a shoe company called Zappos that was then bought by amazon for gazillions yeah so uh, another, another awesome book yes. that's it. great um and uh, am i right in thinking what did he say he said your culture is the leading indicator of brand so basically the company that you actually are is your brand and so how do we find joey's How do we, I'd actually say, how do we find Eugene's or Nacho's or Fanny's or uh, Dana's or Katie's just joined us today? You know, these are my colleagues, people I work with and a massive shout out to the other 155 people I work with. But those are the first that came to mind. How you attract those people is by building a company that people want to be a part of. You know, building a cl- starting a club that people want to be a part of, uh, and whose values are pretty closely aligned with with the company or organisation.
0: Mm. And this industry has a reputation as being a stopgap, a kind of filler industry, or being you know ridiculously hard graft. So what what are, you know, there are some examples of the things you actually do to mean that people will come and work for you rather than going to
1: Pret or. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I remember I used to work at a cafe, and uh, staff food used to be yesterday's leftovers. So what better way to motivate your team uh, to uh, get passionate about your food than by giving them yesterday's leftovers? Probably not ideal. So, you know, it sounds small, but people can choose whatever they like from the menu. They can't have one of everything every day, but they can have one of anything. Um, We've never paid minimum wage. Now, I'm not pretending that people are rolling around in Bentleys and, you know, wearing Rolex's watches after a shift at Friska. they're not. It's a hard industry. Our customers, despite loving us, don't tip us because we're not a tip tippy kind of place. Um, and you've got to work lots of hours, you know, to, to take home a, a, a living. But we've never employed people on a minimum um, wage. Even when Ed and I earned, like, well, not quite literally nothing, but first year, we, I think we took home like 500 quid. And it's not a sob story. I'm so lucky to do what I do. Um, but we took home 500 quid and everyone else was on more than minimum wage. Um, that's a signal to say that, you know, we do value you more. You're not on 50 grand a year because, you know, frankly, we're already losing a load of money. and We can't afford to lose any more. Um, but um, we will pay you more than we have to. Um, we've now got private healthcare plans which pay for people's dental or their contact lenses or glasses or physios if they've hurt themselves or it's a whole load of things. Um, you know, we celebrate their Frisker anniversary, Friscaversary, with a £100 um, restaurant voucher to a fancy restaurant in town. You know, things that you might not normally do for yourself. We acknowledge their time and their effort with us with a treat. Um, we do other things. We do party pots when stores succeed, uh, you know, in, within our sort of context of success. We put money into the party pot and they can go out and enjoy themselves, whether that be going to one of your restaurants or, you know, bars. Or actually, a really nice example the other week was they all went to Ikea. And you sort of hear that and you think that's a weird waste place to spend your <laughs> well, they party <laughs> They didn't go for the meat, well they might have, but they actually all bought stuff for their houses. Nice. And what a lovely thing to do. Yeah. You know, to make your house a bit nicer. Uh, one of the guys, his contribution was towards it, a, bit, a new bed for him. So it's like, I don't know man, there's all sorts of ways we try and make, attract good people and crucially ret- retain good people. Um... It's, it's, it's like the whole package, and you know, as I say, I'm not saying that people are, you know, rolling around in gold-plated cars, they're not. We work hard for our money, everyone wishes they earned more, um, but we, we've never set out to do the minimum. We want to do as much as we can, and to be a great employer. Nice, and do you have to do a lot of Joey uh, customer service training as well to create that kind of uh, oh, uh, working through good,
0: the door culture? Yeah, that's a good question, I don't know, man. Do you think you can train that? <laughs> I don't know, I think the the basis, again, Danny talks about this, it sounds like the Danny show, but 51%ers, you know, hospitality is a reflex in many ways, a Mm. bit like if I threw something at you, you duck, Mm. for genuine hospitality Mm. people, they'll walk in the door and say, hi, how are you, can I get you a tea or a coffee or a Mm. juice or something, in the same way that when I phoned you outside in your car park, your second thing, apart from where are you, was, can I get you a coffee, isn't it, that's a, a, a reflex, but... I don't know, the nuances of being able to do that, yeah, all day, every day, and chat with enthusiasm about the product and
1: the knowledge and the history, I don't know, that that stuff needs training, I guess. It does. does. I don't think you can ever... Oh, sorry. You can't ever train a superstar because they've got it, I think, in our industry, or they don't. And if you can't train them, how do you recruit them, then? How do you recognise it? I think it's by... uh, Developing, uh, trying to trying to nurture a reputation for being a great place to go, for being you know a great place to work. Good people attract good people. If you go to a rest, uh, I don't know, if you go to a restaurant and you really like working in in restaurants and everyone looks like they're, they they want to get out of there and they possibly never checked in in the first place, you're not going to apply there. But if you go to a place and you can feel the energy and People feel like they're, you know, they, they 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 are authentically happy to see you. You want to be a part of that, so I think there's a there's a and that, and that sounds like a lazy answer. That sounds like we haven't got a plan, and maybe we don't. <laughs> <laughs> <Nobody's> <laughs> but I would say, man, we're all winging it. I would say, good people attract good people. You need to create the environment that attracts good people to start with, and then it's about making sure that people can play to their strengths. Uh, it's also about not accepting bad people. You know, I, was talk- I went to an event a few months ago and we were talking about HR and, you know, the challenges and, uh, you know, where does private... Because, you know, private health cash plans for everyone, it costs money, it costs a lot of money. Um, and I was speaking to this bloke about, you know, what do you think the most effective HR strategies or tactics are? Um, and he said, it's pretty simple, really. It- One, two, and three. I can't remember what one and two are, but number three was, um... Oh, yes, I can. No, I can remember two of them. One was (laughs) train people and develop them, which is what we were talking about. But number two is, um, get rid of bad eggs. Because a bad egg spoils the omelette, you know? You want double yokers. Um... Because a double yoker makes an omelette better. <laughs> so, my, my yeah, it's, it's not just about being Mr. Nice Guy. Sometimes you need to be like, dude, you're not really not doing a good job. In fact, you've got to go because this is not the right place for you. Yeah. So sometimes you've got to say that.
0: Yeah, and you I, need to do that quickly, And, I think. and, it's, and it's about
1: doing it quickly because it's the person that you're saying it to doesn't want to be there. No. No one else wants him or her to be there. You don't want him to be there. So just get on with the conversation and have it so you can actually work on the people that do want to be there and do want to push things forward.
0: Yeah, it's a funny thing that is, and I think you have a reputation as being the boss of sometimes having to be ruthless. But I always say, look, I genuinely like to think that if somebody's happy, they'll be really good at their job. If they're not doing a good job then they're probably not happy. And actually, all I'm really doing is creating them the opportunity to go and find something they do love because nobody should be doing something they don't enjoy, basically, do they? So yeah, yeah, sometimes when I have those conversations, I'm like, you're not gonna like Mm -hmm. this, but fundamentally, you know you shouldn't be either in this industry or certainly not with this company go and try something else go and do something else and keep trying new things until you turn into less of an arsehole no I'm sorry I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that yeah. um, so how many friskers have you got now
1: uh, 11 we've got 8 in Bristol uh, and 3 in Manchester
0: ok and if you had to go out and uh, and presumably fund that in a different way from the first time
1: round yes yeah 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 mum and dad's coffers aren't not, <laughs> not that <endless>. deep. <laughs> and
0: you couldn't open all of them looking as shit as the first one they needed no. to uh, <laughs> they needed to look a little bit more more professional
1: <laughs> exactly well, I never said it was legit I, like, like, I didn't say it was shit somebody kidding <laughs> <laughs> um, what have we done we have okay so we opened our second one based on our reputation so our second one wasn't in a typical central business district site so our first one was on Victoria street you look around you look up you see big glass buildings you see people in suits going about their work that was like the business plan to be people's favourite place to go every day And when I say every day, I mean as part of your working week. Yeah. Our second place, actually, we were approached when Bristol and Bath Science Park, out in Emerson's Green, was being built. And the vision was for it to be, you know, certainly a UK leading, if not world leading, um, science and technology park. And they felt and believed that food needed to be a a central part of that offer, because food and drink brings people together and you know they called it what do they call it creative collisions or, I don't know basically they wanted people to talk and network and ideas to flow and the best way to do that is with food and coffee uh, and we had as I say no track record we had a pretty unsuccessful business at Victoria Street from a revenue point of view but the reputation that we were building and the values that we poorly communicated because we didn't have any money for any branding or anything like that came through, you know, you can't fake that, you know, it's not about, we may come on to this later, I am not a plastic cup, and that means that you're an environmentally sustainable business. It's not about that, it's about, you know, being genuine, knowing what you are and, and doing it every day. And an incredible lady called Bonnie Dean, saw Frisca, ate at Frisca, said she wanted a Frisker in her place. And so effectively we opened our second outlet for free in a, in a business park. That gave us the beginnings of learning sort of how to run two sites. Then another 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 business got in touch with us, an independent record store in Bristol called Rise Records, who are now um, Rough Trade, um, who are super cool brand places in Brooklyn and all sorts. But um, yeah, they kind of, again, they saw what we were doing. When we started making good coffee, they liked our coffee, they liked our food, they liked our vibe, and they said, We think you guys are cool. Not personally, the brand, the company, what we do. Um, Why don't you come and do it at our place? So that was our third outlet, you know, opening underneath a record store. So we had a lot of opportunity that came about, not because we were successful business people, um, but because we were committed to doing something really well. Um, We then, you know, you go to events, you talk to respective investors and we spoke to a couple of guys that again really liked what we were doing could see the potential in uh, growing this thing to be more than a few outlets and they put some money in and uh, we opened a few more places and then we raised some money two years ago I think it was two three years ago uh, again to open to do more good stuff
0: and is this, doing this, is this through crowdfunding or is this Angel Investors or is this bank finance? Or oh, it's a bit, bit of a, bank. Bit, a Bit of all of the above. Yeah,
1: all of the above. Shout out to Santander who have been supportive for years and years. Really, really great banks. They've supported us. Um, angel Investors for the first round. Well, after mum and dad. Then the angels appeared, (laughs) Um, and then we got some. Have they been angelic? Ah, yeah, they've been reasonably angelic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then some private equity money, you know, and they're putting it in to get it out. They wanna, they wanna make their return, and that's fine because we wanna grow as big a company as we possibly can that does what we do as well as we possibly can, and with that comes, you know, commercial success, financial success, touch wood, and everyone can do all right. Nice,
0: do, do, do the dream. And, and how much of that strategy, I suppose, around where you're raising money, how f- you mentioned before about having to be flexible mm, and, and yeah. having to deal with issues. I know in the early days it looked like you were focusing on Birmingham and then it became Manchester. Is, mm. this, is this as a result of properties that come up or opportunities and what, what's, what's guiding? Mm. What, make, what, what makes a good frisker town, I suppose? How do you decide where to go next? I think
1: if you look up, you'll see big glass buildings upstairs if you look around, you'll see—I don't know, man. I mean, lots of people when they come and work for us, especially after trial shifts, they say, "I can't believe how nice your customers are." So I know this is not a particularly scientific thing to say, but you look around and do the people look nice? <laughs> I like
0: that. Always I always say, mean "Attractive." I mean, nice. Just they decent look like human nice. beings. Yeah. That's hard in restaurant trade. I always say, like, you know, if you if you sell. I don't know if you're an accountant and you need certain clients. You know, there's certain people you meet and you go, you know what? I don't really want that client. The guy's a bit of an idiot. He's a bit of an arsehole. And I would love sometimes to be able to stand at the front of reception on a really busy Sunday morning breakfast service and kind of go, can I just check before you come in that you're not a knobhead? You know, like, <laughs> are you are you fundamentally a decent human being because you know my staff are working their ass off. They're all nice people, and I just want to make sure that you're going to be nice to them and be respectful and be polite, and that you're not just going to come in and go,
1: yeah. I'm going to write on
0: TripAdvisor unless you get me a coffee in the next ninety seconds. But we don't have that privilege, so it's such an important thing is, is actually attracting nice customers and nice clientele, isn't it? Yes, it is,
1: it is. So, yeah, I'd say what makes for a good Frisca location big glass buildings, lots of people milling around, people that you know, I don't know, I wouldn't even say cash rich because our sandwiches start from like three quid to you know, 2.95. So, have they got a daily routine that involves food and drink? Do they eat? Do they drink? Do they need to go out for it? If they do then, um, yeah, I think it's a good place for a frisker. And Manchester's got a cool vibe, man. I mean, you know, it's like a big Bristol or a little London. And I don't know if I'm just offending all three cities when (laughs) I say that. But yeah, it's got a buzz. It's got a good energy. And um, I know that's not scientific. I know that's not sort of business plannable. But I think when you're kind of growing something at the stage that we're at now, it's about finding those cities and places that really chime with your company then you know in in months or years you can go mass market and you can buy a Patagonia jacket I'm sure in lots and lots of places now but back in the day when they were establishing themselves you probably had to seek it out and it had to be in the right place at the you know and and that's how you kind of build this sort of following I think
0: yeah, now I'm sure in the same way, people go to Patagonia and say, hey, please, can we stock your uh, yeah. coats and hopefully more towns and villages will come and say, hey, exactly. please, can I have a frisker? Um, you start to touch on this just now, and uh, we were introduced through the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Yes. So through all of this, and I guess you've mentioned it with everything is about that authenticity and ethics and that kind of stuff. Um, so, so, so fast food has a bit of a reputation, I suppose, about you know disposable cutlery mm-hmm. and boxes and throwaway culture mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I know you look at this stuff seriously. So, how have you gone about, say, tackling plastic knives and forks and plastic cups? Just, just uh, explain some of your thoughts and
1: learnings around that. So, we've always set out to do the best thing, or in certain situations, the least worst thing. And I know it's not particularly pr y to say we're going to do the least bad thing, but sometimes, but it's, sometimes all- that's but it's the authentic. Truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so take cutlery, for example. When we launched Friska, I thought that an FSC uh, wooden cutlery would be the best disposable cutlery, given that 80% of our trade, and probably back then, 80% of the trade meant two people. <laughs> 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 Don't even know if that that maths works, but it was pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, most people are going to be taking home. Uh, sorry, taking back to their work is food on the go and so we need to think about the, the cutlery that we uh, give to eat their food with. Um, and we thought wood would be the best or least bad uh, material to use, but no one likes eating with wooden cutlery. You know, when you put a wooden spoon on your in your mouth, especially on your tongue, it feels horrible doesn't feel nice. When you cut a slice of sourdough bread with a wooden knife and fork, the wood snaps. So, like, do you want to feel really good about the fact that you've got wooden cutlery that snaps every time you go to cut a slice of bread? Or do you actually want to just serve, uh, within the takeaway context, plastic cutlery that does what it's meant to do? And that's a debate. Now, Listeners now might be thinking, well, what about biodegradable cutlery? You know, doesn't surely that's better? The people have watched, you know, the nature documentaries, they've seen the piles of, you know, garbage that's in our oceans, and absolutely 100% that is a problem. But what I sort of really take issue with is doing things that for perception as opposed to reality. So, you know, after the uh, Attenborough's last documentary I received a deluge of emails saying I can't believe you come across as this sort of worthy brand and by the way I don't think we do I think that's just I don't know where they're getting that from I mean I'm really proud of everything that we do but you know it's not like we're holier than holy in our stores Um, you did get a good rating from the SRA though didn't you uh... we we did we did we did Um, um, but we didn't talk about it really Um, we won the Observer Food Monthly Award for Best Ethical Restaurant. But again, apart from a few tweets, we didn't shout about it because I don't want to, you know... Avoiding the greenwashing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anyway, so email after email, I can't believe you've got plastic cutlery. So what would you rather me have? Right, biodegradable cutlery. So I phoned up our waste provisors and I said, listen, if I move over, and by the way, there's no cost difference for us to serve plastic cutlery, as opposed to biodegradable cutlery so it's not a commercial decision i said if we move away from plastic cutlery over to biodegradable cutlery and we can somehow manage to get all of the what looks like plastic cutlery into a non-plastic bin for it to be biodegraded what will happen to it and the answer was it will be burnt and it will be burnt because there's not sufficient volume of that particular type of biodegradable material to be biodegraded so it makes you know it makes Tommy feel wonderful that he's eating his sourdough toast with poached eggs with biodegradable packaging cutlery he puts it in the right bin it's going to be burnt because there's not enough of it chances are he's just going to put it in the bin and then it's going to be incinerated as well so I don't I mean, I've gone off on one here. <laughs> That's but, good. But I, I, I just think you've got to keep it real, man. And I just feel quite uncomfortable about doing things purely for how it reads and how it um, is perceived. And maybe I'd be more successful if we did more of that. I certainly would have had less phone calls with customers who I insisted to phone back and tell them why we had plastic. And why we had plastic was because A, it cuts the bread compared to wooden. B, biodegradable wasn't going to end up in the right bin. And even if it did, there weren't the local waste streams to biodegrade it. And I felt that if it looked like plastic and it felt like plastic, it was slightly more likely that it could end up in a recycling bin and then actually be recycled than if it just kind of made you feel better and then you just chucked it in the bin and burnt it. Um, So, look, it's a contentious issue. I might be wrong. Um, Again, you know, you you, you have... I I would say since all of that, we've actually removed... uh, Well, we, we now offer metal cutlery to our customers if they're eating in. So if they're eating in, absolutely, there's no way I can say it's better to have plastic cutlery than um, metal because it's not. It has operational costs. In the first two weeks when we launched metal cutlery, 60% of it ended up in the bloody bins How how environmental is that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anyway, we've put up signs now saying, please don't chuck your metal cutlery away. (laughs) It's not environmentally sustainable. You would have been better off using plastic. Please put them in the cutlery bins and we will then wash them and reuse them. So we've done that uh, when when you're eating in store. Um, And you know, it's a small step as it happens. Most of our dishes you can eat with your hands, whether it be a burrito or a wrap or, a you know, whatever else we serve, muffins, toasties. But if you need a knife and fork and you eat in, you can now eat it with a metal knife and fork. Yeah, I think it's a great answer, and I, 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 I uh,
0: share that perspective and concern. I get so irritated by the, uh, by the greenwashing. It was the same on, you know, disposable cups when all of a sudden everybody's sort of, you know, moving across to reusable cups. And then you're like, but those reusable cups at the time that you know some of the major brands were all made in australia and in china and i was trying to find you know who is making these in the uk because surely you know making a cup in china and then shipping it across the ocean and then you know we touched on this before about the you know bags for life you know I don't know people just just end up with too many of them and they end up with all these different keep cups and it's just fundamentally I think is you need to be able to look people in the eye and explain the decision you've made and why you've made it and nothing's perfect is mm. it? we're not nothing's currently perfect. living on planet earth and having no impact whatsoever we presumably do want to live and continue to eat and it is just about yeah finding a, a kind of an area and a compromise that you're either comfortable with and often it's the trajectory and going you know what we can definitely improve this and we're trying to improve it but it's just going to take some time mm. to get to where we want to go so mm. no I think it's uh, it's key just to tell the truth really isn't it and show i think people love just knowing that you've looked into it and, and, and wrestled with it basically and come mm-hmm. up with a decent uh, a decent compromise my worry is whether consumers most consumers care and we put all this work into it and they're not really bothered do you think people care
1: i think lots of people i think people care about different things and what's important to one will be less important to another and vice versa I think fundamentally, you've got to serve something that people like to eat and like to drink in an environment that they like to be in. And I would say that, I mean, take our Dekhi dish, for example, Vietnamese, sorry, it's not, it's not our decky dish.
0: Well, I was just gonna talk about Dekhi, actually, so call it your decky dish, because that's gonna yeah. lead nicely into the charity that you work, which is a little bit easier in many ways. Most people support charity, but yeah, go on, Karen.
1: Yeah, so our Vietnamese pho noodles. Um, no one will buy the Vietnamese pho noodles just because it's the Deki dish. They will buy the Vietnamese pho noodles because it tastes really good. And then if they happen to, to read the box that it comes in, they'll find out a little bit about Deki, which is a microfinance charity that le- effectively lends uh, small pots of money largely to, to women in sub-Saharan Africa to invest in their small businesses to make their lives better and the lives of their families and, I guess, local communities. But what I say to the guys is like, if, yes, I'm incredibly proud of our DECI partnership and I'm incredibly proud that, business, that, 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 that people in other countries that will never come to Frisker, don't even know we exist, are better off because we exist. I'm incredibly proud of that, but that will not, and nor should it, make a customer buy a pot of faux noodles, and that is down to how good it tastes, how good it looks, you know, how quickly it's served, all of those things. So I don't know. I've, I've almost forgotten what question I'm answering. <laughs> but um, how much? How much do people care? I think they care, but the function has got to be there. Hmm. You know. Um, they're not gonna buy Vietnamese pho noodles because it's a Deki dish. They're gonna buy it because they really like the taste and then feel really good that it's a decky dish and it's funded you know, microfinance charities. Let's pick on a different company other than Patagonia. <laughs> Let's talk about Finisterre who are a bit closer to home. Yep. No one is gonna buy a Finisterre waterproof jacket if it doesn't keep you dry. Mm they will feel good that it's a UK company and it's sustainable and it's a B Corp and you know shout out to Finisterre. But if the function of that thing doesn't do what it's meant to do, yeah, it's great, but I'm gonna buy another one because it doesn't keep me dry. So I think, yeah, people care, but, but the thing that you're doing has got to work. It's yes. got to taste nice, yeah. it's got to look nice. The app's got to work. The jacket's got to keep you dry. Yeah. Uh, and if it doesn't do that, then it fails, no matter what values it's based on. Yeah. And um, just
0: going back to decky briefly, so that charity, and it's great because you're not, it's not charity as in, you know, here's some food, here's some money. It's fundamentally about creating opportunity and training people. Mm. Um, this is really helping people with the sort of entrepreneurship opportunities, is that right? And yeah, yeah. What, I'd say so, what so. sort of have you got some examples of, of businesses that people have created off the back of that support? Oh man, there's hundreds.
1: There's hundreds. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know who we're lending to this month, but there are all sorts of people that we've lent to throughout sub Saharan Africa. Uh, and, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's a vegetable store, it's a petrol filling station, which, yes petrol's not sustainable, it's not good for the world, but it's someone's business, and it puts their kids through school, and puts dinner on their table, and who am I to say that they can't run a little petrol station?
0: <laughs> um, At the moment, we still need petrol, I believe, we? We we we've did. not nailed that. We, again, did. the trajectory <laughs> is positive, but it's not about instantaneously going, right, nobody can have a car exactly. anymore. We just go, we need to solve this problem, it's exactly. going to take a bit we of need time. to drive less. Yes.
1: Um, so, it's all sorts of businesses, it's, you know, it's market stalls, it's farmers, it's Petrol stations. It's it's small businesses, as I say, largely uh, female-led, uh, because I think the the research is that largely men can't be trusted, um, which is which <laughs> is just, I think that's stop. what the, yeah well they can't be trusted with the loans, and I know it's a massive stereotype. I mean I don't drink much, but you know they show that if you lend to a man, and this is like going back twenty know 15-ish years back to university but the rate of default for male loans in developing countries is far higher than with female loans because um women it seems are far more responsible
0: yeah maternal instinct to look after the family long term yeah. i think yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah
1: so so that's who Lecky, decky lend to uh largely not exclusively and you know these people never know about frisco they don't need to know i don't care if they know or not but yeah. but we know that yeah, it's
0: nice. And I think that's a change in business as well, is doing things for uh, just for social good. Like you say, you don't need to shout about it. You don't need to tell everyone if they want to find it. Great. But fundamentally, you do it because yeah. it's the right thing to do. That, and like, that authenticity longer term, I think, is what people buy into it's with true, businesses. It's true, man. Yes. And even more so, uh, yeah, in the in the modern world. I was interviewing Jamal last week from Change, Please, the uh, coffee carts in London for homeless people. Oh, yeah. But again, brilliant. And, and he's not just talking about coffee carts and how that's kind of, you know, giving homeless people the opportunity to get off the streets, but fundamentally how that's a much bigger movement around proper social responsibility of companies and not a box ticking exercise, you know, on, on some sort of uh, yeah corporate report, but genuinely looking at the, the new age of entrepreneurship and business, wanting to do something that's that's good for mm. fellow mankind. Mm. So um, to sum up the, you know, great uh, Frisker adventure over the last mm. 10 years, congratulations on what, what you've done. Thank you. Um, what's been the most challenging Aspect of it, would you say, and what's been the
1: most rewarding aspect as the as the flip side? Oh man, every day's the most in you know, a challenging day. Really, it kind of challenges change. I remember when uh, you know I was back in the day, Victoria Street days. I'm being in the store, balancing on a ladder, trying to change menu boards with a light because I had to turn the lights on otherwise I wouldn't be, be able to see where I was putting the menu boards. So sweating away with these hot lamps on me with my girlfriend downstairs steadying the ladder, putting Velcro until like 12 o'clock at night so that the menus would... Admittedly, Ed would say, we well, should have done them on Friday night. Back <laughs> <mate."> um, <laughs> to that, your New Year's
0: Eve business plan. You should have done it on the 30th. Really. Exactly. You could have gone out then.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, you know, back then the challenge was... You know trying to do it to do as much as we could ourselves doing the posters doing the marketing putting the posters on the wall uh you know securing the menus opening shutting making the samples doing basically trying to do as much as we possibly could to make this business a success i guess the challenge uh, as we've grown is to try and to try and share that enthusiasm with others that we work with and get them as enthusiastic as we were, we are, um, about what they do every day and, and talking about, you know, it's about making people feel great through food, coffee and hospitality. And I was only doing an induction, um, at the start of this week with, um, Fran and Kat, who are two new store managers. And even after 10 years and two weeks of doing inductions at Friska, you know, I still feel really excited and my hairs on my arms stand on end still when I talk about what we're all about and talk about the sort of mission of Friska, which is, it's as hard and as easy as making people feel good. Um, so that's I guess the big challenge now trying to imbue that commitment without sounding like a church or you know a, a cult to the cause and making our food as great as it can be and you know not taking the chorizo hash out of the oven until the potatoes are the right level of crispiness because if you take them out before they're going to get soggy and they're not going to be as nice so Keep them in the oven until the potatoes are crispy. You know, put a quarter of an avocado in every house bacon, so that you know you can get a mouthful of avocado with every mouth with every bite you take from the house bacon. Making sure that the the bacon is crispy, making sure that you know the uh, the espresso is properly extracted in the right time and the right way. You know, basically obsessing about the detail because it's the detail. You're only as good as your last cup, and you're only as good as your last. Hot box or toasty and you've got to make it as great as it can be and you know i mean i'm trying to do that with 140 people yeah um, and i work with amazing people you know i work with lots of amazing t- people but but that's the challenge man it's about keeping that motivation going and that momentum going and hopefully building on that momentum about what you're doing it for yeah I
0: think there was some great examples there in just the challenge of hospitality. And Gareth Banner from The Ned was another guy that interviewed you. He's got nearly 1,000 staff in one building, hotel in London. Wow. Bonkers, isn't it? He's got a 24-7 restaurant just to serve 1,000 people in his building. Oh. But he makes the point of, and I can't remember the exact number. I must listen back and double check. But let's say over the course of, uh, of a couple of days when somebody comes and stays at the hotel, there's something like 250 interactions with his team during that time, wow. and it just shows what uh, you know. And, and he's got to obsess over the fact that every one of those interactions is positive and is hospitality and is about how it makes people feel. And just what a ridiculously challenging industry this is, where there are so many uh, human touch points. And humans might be having a bad day, something might have gone wrong, they might have overslept, they might have a hangover, there could be something going on with their kids or their family. Uh, And, you know, when I hear you talking then about, yeah, the exact point that the potato should come out of the oven and the exact amount of avocado, I don't know why anybody works in this industry. It's bonkers, bonkers difficult but such a good buzz and such good fun as well. Which brings us um, uh, to a close with um, as places grow, there's this either this uh, misconception or reality, I suppose, that you get to a certain point and that does just become too hard and that the soul kind of gets ripped out of Mm, the business. mm. You've said about building these incredible foundations over the last decade mm. and that now you're ready to go to the next level. Mm. So, so where do you see, how big do you see Frisk going over what time frame and how are you going to ensure that you don't lose that, that incredible soul and energy that you've put into the business?
1: And is that what keeps you up at night? Oh, <laughs> man. Um, well, what keeps me up at night... Yeah, well, what keeps what, me up, up at night kids? at the moment <laughs> is trying to get as much work done before Alice has our third baby. Because every day I'm thinking, "Geez, Louise, tonight could be the night. Shit, I've got yeah, to get she's the... literally a week away from Yeah, a week away. I've got to get the yeah. Christmas menu that's done. Definitely,
0: that's good at keeping things in perspective, though, isn't yeah, it? That's clearly it the is. priority. And
1: you know what? As, as hard... Even when you... I mean, look, this interview's, I hope, been positive and I've, yeah. I've and I hopefully have sort of given you a, a sense of the, the passion I have for Frisco. But some days you do have a, a shit day and you come in and you're just knackered and you're like, fuck, why can't we just get it right? Why can't those potatoes be crispy? Why can't there be a quarter of an avocado in a house bacon? <laughs> why can't the coffee be extracted in 27 to 29 seconds? I hope I got that right, Bella. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> uh, and you walk through that door and it's like, oh man, that's great. Um, that's great. How did I get on to kids?
0: Um, we were talking about the future. And the future, uh,
1: yeah. So, look, the future of Frisca, I hope, is as big as it can be. That's not a number, but that's the ambition. I would love there to be... Hundreds of Friskers in England and Wales and Scotland. I'd love there to be, you know, potentially thousands of Friskers in the world. It's easy to say that. I might as well say a million, <laughs> a, a billion, a gazillion. True. Yeah. Um, we will get as big as we can be, but we will only grow if we keep to our sort of quality. And we make sure that those things that I've just mentioned are done properly and that we attract people, you know, the, the joeys of this world, but actually I've got just as many, if not more. In fact, I've got more examples than one. I've got lots of examples in, in, in Frisco of the people that make people's day. And it's about attracting those people. It's about being, you know, commercial, understanding. Uh, they might... Love you for a reason, but that doesn't mean they're going to come to you every day and you've got to understand both of those things. Understand why people love you and make sure that, you know, those are authentic reasons, not I am not a plastic cup reason. Um, So that's important. But just that alone doesn't mean that they come and visit you every day. That is about the more sort of objective measures of a successful business. You know, how quickly is the coffee served? How quickly is the food served? Um, You know, do you maintain eye contact when I hand you the coffee? Um, Or, you know, how long are people waiting in the queue? Do you run out of food? All of these sort of objective, measurable things have got to be there, along with the emotive stuff that makes people just love what we do. And if we can keep those two in check and not have, you know, in balance, It's the same idea about the the balance of service and hospitality. That's what I say to the guys. Uh, People want to be served quickly. They want want you to get the right uh, order. They want to get the right change. They want to be given a knife and fork. They want you to scan the loyalty app. Those are points of service which potentially a robot could do. And it's really important that we get those right. Otherwise, a robot may as well do it but what a robot can't do is look you in the eyes with a little you know twinkle they can't connect with you in an emotive way and that's where the hospitality element comes in and so it's a balance between service and hospitality it's a balance between the emotive brand stuff that makes you feel something and making sure You get a quarter of an avocado in a house (laughs) bacon. I agree 100%. You get, uh, I say to my team, you know,
0: customer service, you you get that at McDonald's, but you don't get hospitality, do you? So if you can get that right, if you can get fast food uh, and hospitality in a package, it sounds awesome. Thank you again for sparing the time. Love your enthusiasm and passion that comes across really clearly. It's brilliant. Thank you. Um, good luck with the future. Where should people go if they want to follow your adventures and your journey, either you personally or Friskers? Where's the best place on social and online to
1: go? Um, we're on Instagram at FriskaFood. We were heavily on Twitter, but that's when kind of Twitter was the main platform. We're still on there, but I'm not sure how much we do on Twitter anymore. Again, at FriskaFood. Um, yeah. Frisker Food, at Frisker
0: Food. Perfect. Oh, and come and see you in a growing list of uh, locations across the country. Absolutely. Any, any,
1: what's, what's the next one? Have you got the next one already in the pipeline? Or? Uh, we, 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 as ever, we're always looking at opportunities. If anyone out there thinks they've got an <laughs> opportunity, uh, opportunity for us, get in touch. But yeah, Manchester definitely is a sort of city that we're looking to grow within Um, potentially. There might be some things going on in London, but we need to see.
0: Perfect, all right, well good luck, hope it goes well, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Griff. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.